Hi, this is the Tempter Podcast, where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development, and anything else we find interesting. Your hosts today are Kim Raj and Cliff Gray. How are you doing today, Kim? Hey, Cliff. I'm doing fine. Great. Great. So our topic today is developer workflow and productivity. So we're going to go through some concerns we probably all have as we as we think about our work and trying to get things done. So how do you want to start, Kim? Yeah, it's a very uh, interesting topic. And um, I think what differentiates uh, a person, you know, is, is basically their workflows, how they organize their work. Um, and, you know, particularly will basically, if you touch any aspect of work, you know, the way your workflows uh, feed directly into your productivity. And so in this case, you know, developer workflows feed into developer productivity. So I think it is very important that, you know, this is addressed and every I'm sure that everyone is very interested to know about, you know, what their ideal workflows are. And it's always being optimized for that. Sure. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. So looking at it as kind of a kind of a sequence where one one helps the other. So as we work on products and and various engineering projects, you know, one of our challenges is always finding the right people. You know, as systems get more complex, there's more specialized knowledge needed. So what what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so I think um Putting my open source hat on, um, I think that, you know, the remote work is here to stay now. Um, you know, a lot of times people thought about it is a pandemic thing, but um, I think pandemic just proved it that it is possible. So um, I think especially around, you know, specialized knowledge and work that you just mentioned, it becomes even very important pillar for getting uh, people to be able to work anywhere, but then you have the right people um, and don't have restrictions of uh, place, you know, geographic locations. Um, And this just is going to be a effective way as I see moving forward. Yeah, it really is amazing some of the workflows and and tools that the OSS uh, projects have pioneered and, and the things they've come up with. You know, just a few things like Git. And yeah. while GitHub isn't an open source project, it's very much centered around open source work. Yeah, and that spawned other tools like GitLab and Gitia. And these these tools really help us synchronize you know, give us synchronization points for keeping work in sync between distributed people. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it works quite well. It's, it's, I really enjoy it. It's, it's quite fun. Um, you know, I, I like the transparency and I think a lot of in-house development efforts, you know, even if you're all sitting next to each other, even adop- adopting these, these workflows really have benefits that go far beyond distributed work. So I think yeah. we all have a lot to learn there. Yeah, there's a term called inner source, um, which is essentially something that within an organization, 
um, you know, let's say within back systems, right? You have many people um, working on different projects. You can not work in open, let's say, then you can have something called inner source, uh, which is basically um, your teams are working uh, with each other in a transparent manner uh, inside your company firewall. And that in itself improves quite a bit of productivity and, you know, reuse and all that good stuff. So, mm -hmm. um, so essentially it's not one uh, different way, uh, definitive way of doing work that, you know, you just write your code and then you put it out there in open, you know, internet. Um, when you say open source development methods, you know, it can be applied anywhere. Yes, for sure. And we've we've seen projects that, that go both ways and, and we've we've really experienced the benefits of this. So it's really a nice, nice workflow. So one comment you made at one point was work work will tend to be asynchronous with synchronization points. How do you what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so I think um, if you look at you know, there's a lot of synchronous work that has happened if you look into the, you know, the, the uh, industrial era, and um, you did a lot of work. You went to an office setting and you did a lot of work there, and you know you basically optimized <clears throat> your workflows around that. But I think um, as the knowledge work has become more and more prominent, and the need to do so has become a little bit, um, um, you know, as not as prominent. And the reason being cognitive work involves a lot of thinking, you know, a lot of, um, um, lot of um, asynchronous, you know, thoughts. And at certain point you, you iterate over it for a while. And then before you come to a solution or a possible solution, you, try a few different things, um, all that in your own capacity. And then at a certain point where, where you feel like this is now something that is shareable or rather is something that can be made as plan of record. And that, those are the synchronization points, um, which means that you are synchronizing um, at a given points and that is something you can have fixed synchronization points. You can have um, variable synchronization points. You can have um, more or less tools which are doing the synchronization for you behind the scene. So there are several different ways that you can implement that. Mm -hmm. um, so you yeah. are... I think that's a very helpful concept to, to think about work in terms of asynchronous and synchronous. And uh, it seems to me that synchronous work is expensive work. You know, you think of a, of a long meeting where we're not getting much done. That would be mm -hmm. kind of an extreme example. Um, but yeah, if, if we can, if we can mix the two and, and have the right balance, that, that really seems powerful. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there are tools now that are available that helps you, that helps in a lot of these communications. And you know, a lot of this information that was only possible through synchronous, synchronous meetings or other ways, 
face to face, etc. There are more tools now available that you know a lot of that work that you do can be um, separated out, and you know you, you can just say that you know the I would go from asynchronous to synchronous, right? Uh, as the cost of uh, as, asynchronous is way way lower than synchronous. Uh, you would put, does this require an email exchange, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, does this require a write-up, right? And does this require me calling someone or does this require a video call or does this require me to travel there and talk to people in face-to-face? So Yeah. Yeah, there's certainly certain tasks and, and challenges that, requ- that are, are best done in, in different ways. So being able to differentiate that I think one thing that really helps asynchronous work is transparency. So if, if you're writing some code and you open up a PR at the start of your work and then you're committing, anybody who's interested can watch that at their own time and interest. And, you know, you don't have to schedule meetings. It, you know, it's it, the information's just flowing by and anybody can, you know, dip their hand into the stream anytime they want, you know, so it's, it allows people to kind of work at their own pace and interest. Yeah. But you have to commit to transparency. You have to be willing to be vulnerable to start a PR as soon as you do the work instead of when you finish it. Yeah. And that really, really smooths, smooths out the asynchronous work process. And then maybe your synchronization point could be, be a review and then emerge to main. Yeah. Um, more formal methods like Scrum would have a, 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 me- a meeting every day or every however many days as a synchronization point. Yeah. But I, I think as teams really get, get going, sometimes those, those methodologies, while needed in some cases, you know, maybe overkill in others. Yeah, I think there there are tools that will come in future uh, that will be driven by some sort of um, AI, and they will be as effective as data is fed into them. So, mm-hmm. um, synchronous points don't generate a lot of data; they may generate decisions, uh, but asynchronous will generate a lot of data. And that data is very important for those tools to be effective. So essentially, I think this will give rise to, you know, a usefulness of those kind of tools. Yes. Well, it seems like this could be an entire topic, asynchronous versus synchronous work, or maybe even a book. So Indeed. It, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting topic. One yeah. last thing I, I'll say about this is, is chat is a really interesting tool we have and there's lots of ways to do it but it seems to be a a a really key ingredient for distributed teams to to really gel together and develop relationships and the interesting thing about chat is it can be synchronous or asynchronous so i might i might write you a message in a chat thread and you won't see it for three hours and then you'll reply and I may be at my computer then and we go back and forth a few times synchronously, but then then it turns asynchronous again. So it's just kind of a neat a, a neat tool that can be either 
and it and it um, I, I found it really beneficial for for distributed teams. Yes. So as we as we think about development, how how do we accelerate the rate of development? Yeah, I think um, rate of development is everybody's looking after. I mean, you talk to any organization and they'll give different terms to it, but somebody will call feature velocity or other names, right? But essentially, all they're looking for is, you know, how do I accelerate the rate of development? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if there was a simple answer to it, everybody would have been done with it. But I think um, there are a few things that, you know, would help you in achieving, you know, some of it. And um, rate of development, essentially, you, you have to really uh, make uh, sure that the rate of development is about effective features. So you're not like uh, running in a hamster wheel, right? Sometimes you do busy work and, you know, that is not part of accelerating your rate of development, right? Um, and sometimes you may misconstrue that. So what I mean by doing that is that, say, you have a repetitive task and you find that, oh, I can do it. Uh, I can do five of them in, in, in parallel. But what would be effective is if you can offload that task to an automation task like a continuous integration or uh, some sort of other tool that will achieve that task. Uh, what it does is, um, as a human being, it removes the cognitive overload that that will be on you. Um, to get that done. You might have written down a script, for example, to do a build or whatever, but the fact that you have to issue that manually is cognitive overload. Because if you miss that, then the build may run for an hour and a half. And you know you might go on to a different meeting or a different task, and that won't happen for an hour and a half. So um, it's important that you automate that kind of tasks, which are repetitive, and you delegate them to some tools. You know, there are like CI tools, for example, you know, uh, Jenkins, GitHub Actions, you name it, there are plenty of them out there. Some of them are even integrated nowadays uh, with your infrastructures like GitHub, GitLab, etc. So, um, So that's one part, I would think, and um, and there are more, I guess. Um, what's your idea on the development, increasing the rate of development? Yeah, it's an interesting topic, and it's it's kind of always hard to it's kind of hard to nail down all the time what what's happening when it feels like a team is slowing down and struggling to to get work done, or when it's going really good. But yeah, I, I think I think you're onto something there. CI CD. And, and what what the what these automations do is they allow us to release and test more often. And when we release often, that feels good, you know. And we when we uh, 
can deliver something more often and have confidence in it. It just makes us feel good. It improves our morale. Mm -hmm. It energizes the team. So I, I think it's, you know, I, I, I look at a, a development effort or a team as kind of a big flywheel. It takes a lot of effort to, to get it going. And it's just these little pushes, you know, a little automation here, a little automation there. A um, little improvement and, you know, your your flywheel starts going faster and faster and then it just helps everything. But it's kind of a question I ask often, is my flywheel going, is speeding up or is it speeding down mm. or slowing down? So that that's really the, you know, what, what direction am I heading? And probably the thing that slows us down the, the most is, a te is technical debt. Yeah. And that's just when we haven't taken care of things. There gets to be a lot of busy work. Uh, we're not confident in our design or our, our software. So when we release it, we have to do a lot of checking and there's a lot of uncertainty and, and you know, will this release break? And all that, all that stuff just slows us down. So if, if we can avoid all that, and you know avoid technical debt that technical debt is just a quagmire it's like a it's like a bog you know you just feel your feet sinking and it's <laughs> yeah a struggle just to even walk so absolutely yeah i think technical debt you know um i can just see this from if I say from you know some of the open source projects I maintain, and some of them are because I you know we the project is downstream of some upstream project you know usually distribution projects are like that, and you may be supporting an esoteric architecture and you say hell hey, there is this nice patch I did to Zbox or component B, you know, name it like libc or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it made it work and you are so happy you made the release and, you know, that architecture is or that particular sock or machine is now working in your distribution. Um, but if you forget about that patch, next time you upgrade your libc to a newer version, it may break. Mm-hmm. Um, because you might have touched, you know, the code in the areas where upstream is de doing different changes. Maybe they are reorganizing, may, uh, maybe they are changing, rewriting, God forbid, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and now suddenly when you go from version one to version two, your patch has to be redone, right? So you did it once, you are doing it again, and you'll keep doing it again and again as long as you maintain it. Um, so there's a huge uh, cost that you attach it to um, the technical debt that you're accruing. And it only starts with one, and then you'll have maybe a different branch, different product, and it just spirals. So, uh, for example, in this case, you know, what you would do is when you do that patch, you would basically spend some time as part of your development and looking at upstream and opening up a discussion there through whatever methods the upstream follows. It could be an email, 
it could be a bug tracking system it could be a you know discord discourse you name it right so whatever the community interaction platforms are in use um, it's better to use it right then and there and add a discussion about this and then point hey you know this is how we fixed it it may not be ideal because you are not upstream developer or it may be and a lot of times it is so what then you do is you're basically opening that thread up where this will be upstreamed and you're paying back your debt that you haven't yet accrued mm-hmm. um, and so this really works well um, for a couple of other reasons one is that the community knows that you are working on that certain area of the problem. So if there is someone else, you know, they join hands with you. Uh, if upstream is looking for someone, you are developing that expertise. So, you know, they may in- engage you in that capacity. Uh, in general, it is a, is a win-win at that point. There is a cost, a little bit of cost associated with it when you do it, because let's say you develop that fix in a day, it might be an hour or maybe a couple of hours for you to interact, you know, do all these things I talked about. So yes, there is a cost, upfront cost to it, but it's way, way less than, say, you would be spending days later on forward porting that patch, um, you know, to your uh, product or whatever in future. Yes, that's, that's an excellent example. And one one of the hardest systems to maintain is a Yocto build where there are dozens and dozens of BB appends and you know just just dozens of components are modified with little patches and yeah you know and any any of that that can be pushed upstream like you said it takes more uptime up front but when we go to upgrade it's it's easy yeah and that's that's what we want absolutely so kind of along these lines. What about efficiency? How do we be more efficient? Yeah, so I think, you know, whatever we talked so far, efficiency lies underneath it, isn't it? Mm -hmm. How do you become efficient, right? So as we know, we talk about it and you look at a number of lines of code for, you know, big projects like the browser, the kernel, it's always going up and up and up. What that tells you is that the system is getting complex. As it gets more features, you know, more support for more different machines or um, different kind of use cases. So there is a constant battle that you will have to fight, which is that you focus on simplicity. What that means is um, you keep working on the solution even when it is done so this goes to also saying you know find a bug somewhere so it says that you know leave the code better than you found it Mm -hmm. right so i'll cite that as an example here because what you're doing is you look at that particular piece um, from maybe a different vantage point and you see, ah, okay, there is this um, redundant code or dead code that basically can be thrown away if I do this. 
but that's not part of the thing that you're supposed to do right now. But I would say that because you prioritize focusing on simplicity, you may say, yes, this is part of that job. So this is a process, it's a gradual process. It is not something, okay, today I will be focusing on simplicity. It doesn't work that way, right? It has to be a ingredient of your development workflow. So, so there are these kind of examples that'll make you more efficient because it's like, you know, when you go for a walk and then you find a little pebble on the road, right? And you just pick it up and put it aside because the next time or the next person who's walking through that doesn't hit that, right? So um, it's very similar approach. Yeah, so basically efficiency requires investment mm -hmm. and that investment then will, will uh, provide a return in the future. So yeah, I like that. Yeah, and this 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 it goes at the flies at the group level, personal level. I mean, we can always invest in our our own skills, or the tools we have, how well we can use them. And in the end, you know, sometimes we have to regroup. You know, if we build something and we get mired in complexity, we occasionally have to step back and and look at the architecture, look at our data structures, look at how we're communicating. And kind of my test for, for architecture, if it's getting simpler, it's probably heading in the right direction. If we're continually adding layers and layers on top of an architecture and each layer tries to fix the problems in the previous layer, then, then we're probably, probably not heading in the right direction. So, yeah, that's a good uh, measure. You know, it's like the thermometer and layering adds basically complexity, which is opposite of simplicity. Mm -hmm. And in some cases it may be justified, but in many cases it is not. And uh, a right amount of layering is fine, but I guess if you are layering for the purpose of, you know, hiding the interfaces from the bottom layer for whatever reason, maybe it is better to look at the bottom layer and say, hey, you know, do we really need this here? Or can we get this accomplished in the bottom layer itself? And so asking those kind of questions at the right time in the right place in your software stack, for example, goes a long way. Yes, uh, for sure. Yeah. So one question a lot of developers are probably asking is how AI impact me how will it change my job will it put me out of work will it help me so i'm sure you've done lots of thinking on this do you have any any thoughts on where this is all heading yeah i think um you know everybody has their take on it but generally what i would think is you know it is here to support you to help you and um it just will make you more efficient you know in doing things that you haven't been able to do so far. And, you know, to give you just my own example, you know, I would be uh, writing code in my editor and then I'll have like a language server, you know, that would basically give me hints when I'm typing a function or, you know, it'll tell me about 
hey, this is the prototype for this function, right? Um, if there is an AI, um, you know, assistant, which would basically give me the whole shebang about it, like saying, hey, these are the side effects, you know, these are the ways it is used in C and C++ and yada, yada, and you need to use FFI. Why not? You know, and, mm -hmm. you know, I will just be happy to have something of that nature. And um, so what I would see is, you know, we've seen this, you know, uh, in, in, in the productivity landscape in the past, right? Um, we all started in assembly many, many, well, many, many decades ago. Yeah, and people then, who are as old as us anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the C compilers came, you know, people said, oh, now the programmers are obsolete, right? because programmers were equal to assembly programmers, right? But look, C gave rise to C programmers, which is probably way, way, way more number of programmers than, say, the assembly programmers were. And then, you know, you just can keep thinking about it in the same line, and you see that, you know, the amount of uh, developers we have today, right, um, um, is because of, you know, the compiler, uh, for example, that came underneath and took away lot of the details uh, that were basically mundane or were boilerplate at that point, you know, those kind of stuff. So um, so I think I'm just seeing that it is going to be in the same um, realm uh, where it'll basically make you more productive. And uh, the definition of programming, as I said, is your programming systems. Uh, and language is a tool. I've been always saying that. Um, whichever language you use, it's like your chainsaw or, you know, hacksaw, whatever. So um, this is just basically another tool in your kitty. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And, you know, we've seen many, many changes in automation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, over, over the last couple centuries and and sure, it, it does displace some people for some amount of time, but in the end, it seems like there's more opportunity. Mm -hmm. And really, you know, if we can do more with less effort, society should be richer. Yeah. And when there's there's more wealth in society, there's more opportunity. Yeah. So I I think I see it as more of an incremental change. I know a lot of people are picturing AI is like this huge step change that's just going to drastically turn yeah. everything on its head. But, you know, it, it, in the end, it's just a tool. It, it makes us more efficient. It requires some investment to learn. And, you know, that's just the work we need to put in to, to learn new tools. Yeah, I would think that is the right attitude towards it. And, um, uh, and you know, use it in your uh, to your advantage, and I think um, it'll just make you more productive in in many fashions. So, you know, we do uh, uh, think about you know a particular kind of work scenarios, and there are a lot of things you do, um, you know, when you do a job and. You know, they, they, there are many aspects of it, process, you know, other things where this will just make you more effective.
Yeah, so um, how do we adapt to this change then? Yeah, well, there's there's several ideas that come to mind. Um, you know, one is is to avoid lock-in. You know, if you if you get locked into a certain tool set or type of technology, you know, it real, it can limit your your what your what you can do in the future. So one thing I, I try to do when I when possible is to use open tools when possible. Mm-hmm. And generally, in the software world and and this is also coming to hardware as well. The open source is is usually leading the technology. So, yeah, you know, using op- open tools when you can helps. Yeah, I think that's a very good strategy. I would think that you know, if you avoid lock-ins, so um, most of the times, you know, lock-ins are bad because what that does is if you are kind of going to innovate on more either you need to open a new stream or use a different set of tools or something of that nature or you have a dependency um, that now you certainly are tied to mm-hmm. uh, quite heavily so using of using open tools doesn't really reduce your cost or you know acquisition cost of those um, that you would get from a logged in tool but it gives you flexibility where you can influence um, using this tool in a certain way uh, for your own advantage. Yes, and, right. Um, that may, you may make those changes to the tool, you may participate in the community and influence the changes, uh, that in turn helps you. And it's paying your technical debt for maintaining your tools uh, all along, you know, we talked about technical debt. Um, so it is a certainly a very, uh, very sound strategy, I would think. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think just the agility, flexibility, maintaining your code, your designs, continually improving them. And we've, we've talked about these topics multiple times from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. But one last thing I'll mention is it's important to own the integration points. And what I mean by that is, you know, where different parts of your system come together, if you own those integration points, then you can swap swap in new components, technologies. But if you don't own the integration point and someone else is in control of that, then it becomes very hard to change anything or adapt to new technologies. And I, I think this this principle applies to both hardware and software. So I, I generally encourage people to, you know, you want to, you want to own where things are coming together and then you have the flexibility. Yes. And in a way, I think that's basically roughly, you know, loosely a definition of a platform that I think we Mm -hmm. talked about several times is, you know, it's around the edges. Right. And as a platform, you soften the edges, you fine, uh, fine grain them, uh, remove some roughness and you have a very shiny platform. Yes. So uh, certainly what goes underneath is you have a well-maintained code that's supporting it. Your designs are sound, uh, which is basically supporting you know, your uh, interaction points at that 
integration points that we talked about. And then you continuously improve them because, you know, more or less these points would become obsolete or new points will come in at an integration stage. So unless you continually improve it, you'll get into that darkness of technical debt and you'll become less nimble. Yes. Yeah, so that's that's um, a lot of, a lot of good thoughts. Appreciate appreciate it, Kim. So if yeah. if um, if our listeners have any if you have any comments or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. So reach out to us in any place we we're available. Uh, please share this with a with a friend if you think they'd enjoy it. And until next time. Thank Indeed. you. Thank you.